1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. In March 2021, the container ship Ever Given ran aground and blocked the Suez Canal for six days. Do you remember that? It provided oodles of entertainment and became a never-ending source of memes. This was especially true after an excavator was brought in that for the job was pathetically small and images of its hopeless efforts to dig out the container ship became a metaphor for well, so many aspects of human life and society. Like, I remember someone joking that the excavator's powerlessness was like science and technology studies scholars trying to address the problems of science and technology. Well, that's a good one. But the ever-given incident also drew attention to the realities, risks, and fragilities of our global shipping system, which provides the foundation of globalization and the movement of goods, which increased astronomically from the 1980s through the first years of this century. Giant shipping containers are central to how we have come to move commodities, parts, and manufactured products, but when things go awry, well, it can lead to big problems for those reliant on that movement. One of my favorite books on the history of globalization is economist, historian, and author Mark Levinson's 2006 book, The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. In 2020, Levinson Levinson published something of a follow-up, though not a sequel to The Box, titled outside the box, how globalization changed from moving stuff to spreading ideas, in which he argues that the past several decades of global economic change, which has all been about moving stuff, is but one period of globalization, and one that has been in decline since the 2008 financial crisis. He makes the case that to understand our present and the future, we have to understand that processes of globalization have changed throughout history and will continue to do so. In this conversation, Mark and I talk about his interesting career, how Outside the Box relates to his other works, and what, if anything, he thinks has changed between the time this book was published in 2020 and today. I had a wonderful time chatting with Mark. I think you'll learn a lot from him. Hey, get excited! Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Lee, I'm delighted to be with you. So Outside the Box is a great book. And um, when you explain it to people and what it's about, what do you say? And what were you trying to do with it? And I'll also, you previously wrote a book titled The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. So maybe you could talk a bit about how the two are connected. Sure. Uh, Outside the box is not a sequel to the box, which uh,
2: I think has caused some confusion. Uh Uh, The the box was a a history of the development of container shipping and made the argument that without the development of the shipping container, it would be impossible to have globalization on the scale that exists today. Uh, That uh, argument, I think, is now uh, pretty widely accepted Uh, Shipping just had not gotten much attention before uh, the box was published. The uh, newer book, uh, Outside the Box, is really conceived more as a history of globalization, and looks at really how we got to these value chains that characterize the modern economy. Uh, I found that there was a lot of sort of loose talk about globalization. Uh, It's been around forever. There's nothing new under the sun here. Mm -hmm. And, hey, what's so special about international trade? And so I I thought it was helpful to explain why trade is not the same thing as globalization. Uh, Also to uh, help understand the development of globalization. Uh, I'm going to have to stop here. Uh I think this is rubbing against something. Okay. Okay. I'm going to start with Outside the Box. Yeah. that's Okay. Outside the Box is a very different book. It started out as a very brief history of globalization because it was my view that there was a lot of misunderstanding of, of globalization. Many people said, hey, there's nothing new here. We've had trade since forever. Uh, so w- why bother with this? Uh, I felt that that really misunderstood the changes that had occurred in trade and in international relations over many centuries. And so uh, I tried to uh, explain when globalization began to develop, globalization in a modern sense, and the different phases it's gone through. Because the current phase, which involves a lot of value chains, and a very transport-intensive international economy, is not the only type of globalization we've had. Mm-hmm. So I, I take readers through that, and then I end up talking a bit about how I expect globalization to change over the coming years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so when when the container ship, the Ever Given, blocked the Suez Canal for six days in, in March of 2021, uh, kind of becoming a massively popular resource for memes, how many phone calls did you get from news outlets in that in that week?
2: I got quite a few. Uh, this really piqued people's interest in part, it was visually fascinating to see this giant vessel almost totally blocking the Suez Canal. It was even more fascinating to see this giant vessel with this little tiny <laughs> yes. excavator up against the hull. It gave people an idea of the the scale of these modern ships. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, I got a lot of calls from people who wanted to know why this has happened. And I certainly wasn't uh, about to explain that since we didn't really know any facts at that time, except that the ship was grounded. Yeah. But this certainly brought the scale of a, uh, globalization of goods trade to life, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. It also, I think, drew more attention to a lot of the risks of globalization. And this is something I talk a lot about in Outside the Box. I really think that companies, and this is largely a decision made by individual companies, badly misunderstood risks in making decisions about how to organize their businesses. And this is just one example of that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Outside the Box is one of those books that was started well before uh, COVID hit, um, but was made even more timely by by that moment. And um, and in some ways, I mean, some of the things you say is almost prophetic uh, kind of outcomes from COVID. So, you know, what, you know, it wasn't COVID. You didn't write it in just 2020. Uh, but what is it just that initial misunderstanding, the loose talk that you heard going on that kind of started you down the road of writing this book?
2: There was, I think, a misunderstanding that this globalization was going on forever in the way we knew it. And it's actually been apparent for a good while now that globalization was changing in ways that perhaps were not so visible. You know, international trade as a share of the world economy actually peaked in 2008. Mm -hmm. Of foreign direct investment as a share of the world economy actually peaked in two thousand and seven mm-hmm. uh, and and so we 're not uh, in a situation where we 've got this line that 's just going upwards yeah. upwards, and we 're becoming more and more globalized uh, at the same time uh, the world is going through major demographic changes that are belatedly starting to get some attention yeah uh, and so we're we 're seeing very slow growth in many economies. We're seeing slow population growth in most parts of the world now and declining populations in some places. And these things are helping fuel less interest in stuff, let's put it that way. Uh, So we're seeing globalization really has a whole lot more to do with things that aren't stuff. Mm -hmm. Most of us experienced this during the pandemic when we went to watch something on TV and suddenly found ourselves watching a Japanese comedy uh, or uh, an Israeli uh, spy thriller on, on uh, Netflix, okay, that's international trade. That's globalization. Yeah. People just don't think about it that way.
1: So, you've, Mark, you've had a really interesting career. Am I right that you were uh, trained as an economist and then became a journalist? Is that how you got started professionally? No, uh, I
2: uh, take pride in being uh, one of the least numerate economists you'll ever meet. Uh, I actually, uh, I did a couple of uh, graduate degrees in uh, public policy with a particular interest in international economics, uh, and then my doctorate is in history, huh. uh, mostly because when I decided I wanted to do a doctorate, uh, I didn't really want to go through uh, two semesters of micro and two semesters of macro and hmm. two semesters of math for economists, the third time around, and also frankly uh, if you 're doing economics these days, you need to very much keep up with uh, the the math and the the uh, computing and yeah. those sorts of things it 's become a very very technical business and that 's not something I particularly enjoy yeah there are people who really love doing uh, very fancy um, Uh, quantitative analysis. And um, that's just not what I like to do so much. So I've got a a pretty reasonable knowledge of economics, I think, but I tend to apply it with words rather than with equations.
1: Yep. Um, You worked for The Economist and other outlets. And then I I think by the time I met you, you were probably at the Congressional Research Office. Is is that right?
2: Uh, I was a journalist dealing with economics Uh for, for many years. Uh somewhat uh, got into that by accident. Actually, I was working as a, a journalist for Time magazine in Atlanta, <laughs> and what I found was that the uh, prestige stuff was politics, and so the bureau chief was handling the politics stories, and so there was plenty of work for me to do on business-related stuff because nobody thought that was very interesting, so <laughs> I learned a lot about business and economics by doing that. Later worked uh, several other places in, in journalism, ending up as a, the finance and economics editor of The Economist. Uh, I think maybe when we got to know each other, I was working at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase in New York. Okay. where I was uh, an economist for, uh, I guess, about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, so I actually did some practical economics, uh, learned some things that they don't teach you in uh, graduate school. Uh, for example, uh, I think in, in 10 years of doing this, I had one client ask me for an R-squared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the relevant skill in, in the investment market is actually Excel charting. People want to see a picture that tells a story that they can understand. Huh. And, and that was very helpful to me in learning how to relate to economics to people who may be interested in economic things but don't really want to plow through the, uh, th- through the equations yeah. and the technical descriptions. And then I worked for a while at the uh, Congressional Research Service in, in Washington, and uh, at one point I had a fellowship at the Council on Foreign Relations as well. So yeah. I've kind of been around.
1: And where did it, you know, part of the reason I wanted to spell out this background, uh, this interesting background of yours is where where did book writing fit in this? How did you, you know, how did, how did you start writing books and how did it fit into how you thought about your career at the time?
2: I wrote a couple of books in the late 1980s. Uh, they weren't bestsellers. Uh, writing them was very helpful to me mm-hmm. in learning how to write books. And uh, so I... Uh, I got some background from that. Uh, I really had not uh, written for anything for a number of years thereafter, but uh, I, I had done in the early 1990s a series of what I guess you would call oral history interviews with people who had been involved in the early development of container shipping. The reason was that uh, I had worked in the late 1980s at uh, the Journal of Commerce, which was at that point a daily newspaper in New York dealing with international trade and transportation. And I thought it would be interesting to write a biography of Malcolm McLean, who was uh, one of the pioneers in the development of modern container shipping. Um, McLean wasn't interested, but I did, uh, in the early 90s, a number of interviews with people who had been there at the creation, who had worked with McLean in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, as container shipping had developed and then started to become an international business. So I had that background, and I had these interviews yeah. sitting uh, in in um, a folder. I never wrote the biography, uh, and I. Discovered really why when McLean uh, died a few years later, uh, which was that McLean, while he had uh, amazing accomplishments, was all about business. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he loved business. He lived and breathed business, and he did not have the breadth of activities or interests that tend to make a biography more interesting to readers. Yeah. Uh, and so I ended up writing The Box about the industry that he helped create rather than about mm. his life. Yeah. That, that's how that happened.
1: Um, you know, maybe if you maybe you see Outside the Box linked thematically to all the books you've worked on in your career, but, um, you know, uh, I see it just as much linked to the box as another book above yours that I really love, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Postwar Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. And I think that's both because, you know, the changes that you deal with, the kind of deregulation and stuff uh, that you deal with in An Extraordinary Time is very much a part of this story, but also because, um, you know, you, talk, you write about the kind of costs and sufferings that come uh, with modern economic change in, in both of those books. So can you give a, a list the listeners just a brief sense of what an extraordinary time is about and what you were up to with that? An extraordinary
2: time was an economic history or is an economic history and again a a fairly brief one uh of the end of the post-war boom and the rise of uh, a new approach to the world economy. What I argue basically is that in the post-war period, there was a lot of support for big government, the growth of the welfare state, because economic growth was really strong around the world. Yeah. People experienced improvements in their living standards that were so rapid they could feel them. They could, could see their lives getting better from year to year. Yeah, and That came to an end in the early 1970s with the first oil crisis. And at that point, uh, people started to get frustrated, and and the welfare state took a lot of the blame. Uh, The problem, actually, is not something that the welfare state could or couldn't address particularly, and that is that productivity growth was slowing a lot around the world. It really wasn't noticed at the time. But as various... Politicians in various countries tried and failed to revive economic growth during the 1970s. That gave rise to a a conservative revival. And so in uh, an extraordinary time, I trace the popularity of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Helmut Kohl, other politicians on the right to the fact that politicians of uh, a less market oriented bent were unable to deliver the goods after a while. Yeah. And so the public just turned to somebody else, turned to somebody who had different ideas in the hope that maybe those ideas would restore the the growth in living standards that they had enjoyed for so many years and that had for some reason disappeared in the 1970s.
1: Yeah. And one one of the things I love about the book is this return of the ordinary economy idea because um you know the conservative politicians haven't weren't able to deliver uh, more productivity either, as you point out, and that's continued more or less unchanged right up to today. So your your book Outside the Box is organized organized around a framework of kind of a periodization of three, and then you suggest at the end four globalizations. So just to kind of provide that uh, overall picture for listeners, can you explain what the first three globalizations were?
2: Sure. Uh, Just for background, uh, I think it's important to know that there was certainly a lot of international activity before globalization came along. There was a lot of trade. We're familiar with, you know, the the East India Company and cotton going across the Atlantic and so forth. But the trade prior to the 1830s was either raw commodities. Or luxury goods. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you tour uh, any castle in in Europe, and you'll see lots of uh, Chinese porcelains from the sixteen and seventeen hundreds, and yeah. uh, the silks and the the tapestries. Yeah, those things were traded internationally, but most people were really not much affected by the international economy right. in most countries up until about the eighteen thirties, and it was really the rise of international capitalism that fired the first globalization. Mm -hmm. Uh, That involved a big increase in international trade uh, and also a lot of foreign investment. Uh, This was a phase that ran from roughly 1830 until 1913. And we can date the end of it pretty closely because in uh, 1914, World War I broke out and that was the end of the first globalization. During this period, we started to have bigger companies, particularly in Europe, uh, and then late in the period in, in other countries. Uh, they started uh, importing a lot more commodities. The European countries had colonies and they exploited those colonies for purposes of international trade. And we had uh, finance capital developing, uh, particularly in Europe. Most of the international investment. Came from uh, Britain and then France and and later on Germany. Uh, But we had European money building railroads Mm -hmm. and steel mills in the United States. The entire Argentine rail system was built by foreign investment Mm -hmm. during this period. And and so that was definitely a form of globalization, but it was not at all like the globalization that we have today. Uh, For example, Commodities would be sent to someplace in Europe, and they'd be sold at the dock in most cases. Mm-hmm. Okay? It was not a company controlling its supply chains in the way we think that that occurs today. Yep. There was really not much trade in manufactured goods until right before World War I. So, yes, there was globalization. No, it wasn't the globalization that we're familiar with. World War I, of course, put an end to that. This was followed by a difficult economic period in the 20s and 30s when international trade was at pretty low levels. There was a lot of currency instability. We had the Great Depression. We had a lot of trade barriers erected by different countries. And then World War II. Uh, As World War II came toward an end, of the governments of the victorious countries, their soon-to-be victorious countries, really undertook a concerted effort to reinvigorate the global economy. Uh, people are familiar with the Bretton Woods Agreements, which were designed to create a new currency system, to free up international trade. Okay, here we had government policy deliberately encouraging more globalization. Mm-hmm. That's not how it was thought of at the time. The term was not in use, but that's basically what happened. And starting about 1947, two years after the war ended, we had a big increase in international trade all over the world. We had organizations like the European Economic Community, first known as the European um, uh, Coal and Steel uh, Arrangement, uh, designed to uh, provide free trade at least in certain products, uh, we had lots of manufacturing exports there's a a landmark that most people are not aware of in part because the data are imprecise but it was around nineteen fifty seven perhaps nineteen fifty eight that manufactured goods for the first time accounted for a majority of world trade huh. as the world was moving away from commodities. So these were really important shifts. This second globalization gave rise to a lot of international lending. It gave rise to what we came to call the multinational corporation. That's a term that's not much in use today because so many corporations are multinational. Yeah. But this was a special creature yeah. in the 1950s and 1960s. <laughs> we're talking about big companies that planted factories in different countries around the world, mostly to serve local or regional markets. There wasn't much by way of international supply of components, but you had the General Motors and the General Electrics and and, uh, the uh, Mitsubishis and, and Hitachis and those sorts of companies putting factories here and there, to serve customers in different places around the world, which was a new way of doing business. Yeah, And so the world economy grew very robustly during this period. The period went on until the 1970s when, because economic growth slowed, international trade slowed a lot, and it actually declined in the early 1980s. This was really the end of the second globalization. Hmm. This model of growth had kind of exhausted itself. The relentless expansion of manufacturing had come to an end. And we're, we're seeing manufacturing employment peak in many countries. And so there was a period of time in the 1980s when the world economy looked a pretty somnolent. There was just not a lot of vitality. We had the less developed country debt crisis, the LDC debt crisis during that period. And that's one reason why all of the international lending that had gone on in the 60s and 70s had led many countries, Brazil, Argentina, Poland, Indonesia, to be overwhelmed with debt. They couldn't service those debts. They certainly couldn't buy imports in any great quantity, and that contributed to international trade really drying up. But while it wasn't much noticed at the time, there were three important things going on during this period. One is we had the development and growth of container shipping, Mm -hmm. which was going on worldwide by the 1980s. This was lowering the cost of shipping goods around the world and dramatically improving reliability. The second was that the cost of international telecommunication absolutely plummeted during the 1980s. Yeah. International phone calls previously had cost dollars a minute. Okay, now, international phone calls were pretty cheap and on the way to becoming free. You didn't need to send messages with a telex machine, sort of teletypewriter, anymore. You could actually make a phone call and talk to your uh, manager in some other country. And then we had the vast increase in computing power and the spread of desktop computing. So you could actually hook into your supplier's computer system and figure out what was coming out of the supplier's assembly line and when those goods were going to be ready for you.
0: So
2: so we started to see companies putting these things together. And that was really the onset of what we now call value chains, Mm -hmm. where Companies could break up their production processes, make this here, that there, bring the goods together in some other place for final assembly, and then ship the finished product off to some other country still. These kinds of value chains didn't exist prior to the 1980s. Since the late 1980s, intermediate goods, that is goods that are in process, have accounted for a majority of world trade. Okay. This is stuff that's been made here and is going there to be incorporated into some other part or component yeah. or finished product. That's most of what goes in these container ships today. Wow. And this is really what we think of as globalization, this age of these long, often very complex value chains in which countries, excuse me, in which companies bring producers in many countries together in order to create a final product. So that's the third globalization. The third globalization reached its peak around the time of the financial crisis in 2008. That's when we saw trade topping off as a share of the world's output. We saw foreign investment, foreign lending topping off. And I think there were some reasons for this that really were not getting a whole lot of attention before the pandemic. Uh, One is that these supply chains had become increasingly unreliable. Uh, We saw, for example, that ship lines were building larger and larger ships with the idea that they could carry freight around the world more cheaply. Well, these larger ships often didn't operate on time because it took too long to load them or too long to unload them. We had ships starting to sail more slowly to save energy costs. Uh, And and, and there were interruptions in supply chains for reasons that people hadn't figured on. Strikes, earthquakes, fires, other sorts of things like that. The companies that had built these long supply chains really hadn't penciled in. The cost of risk. They had just been focused on, hey, it's cheaper to make this in Mexico or it's cheaper to make this in China. They hadn't said, but what happens if it goes wrong? What happens if that factory in China gets shut down? Or what happens if there's an accident at the port and our container can't get on board a ship? Mm -hmm. By the early 2010s, companies were starting to pay attention to this stuff. They were starting to calculate risk and beginning slowly to uh, back away from this very intensive globalization in, in order to, to mitigate their risks. And then of course once the pandemic struck, everybody was suddenly talking about risk right. the value <laughs> chains and yeah, yeah.
1: the conventional wisdom. <laughs> yeah, the PowerPoint uh presentations uh changed all of a sudden, right? I mean it was like <laughs> all the consultants and why
2: didn't you guys think about these risks yeah. <laughs> yes that became the conversation and, and we had the, the, the stories which may well be apocryphal for all I know about CEOs actually paying attention to supply chains
1: yeah at Evernorth Health Services we believe costs shouldn't get
2: in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: Um, why don't we add a couple more um, factors that may have played a role in, in kind of uh, bringing the third uh, – globalization to an end. So you also talk about let's see here there's environmental problems and also kind of backlashes amongst various populations. So what other factors do you think contributed this shift?
2: Well there were definitely a number of things going on. Uh, obviously there was more consciousness of, of the environmental cost of some of this international trade. Yeah. Although there are, there are also a lot of people who are against international trade. Uh, and making assertions about the environmental damage it causes, which in particular cases are wrong. Right, this is just totally. a very product-specific thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't think it's right at all to generalize yeah. about uh, international trade uh, contributing to environmental damage. But, but clearly we had that. There were rising costs. Uh, it dawned on people that you know, China was no longer a cheap place to manufacture. Mm-hmm and we have had changes that have become much more visible i think uh, which is that which we've also had changes that have become much more visible and those have to do with the physical production process being less important in many industries mm-hmm. you know it it used to be that the process of stamping or molding or assembling was the important part of the production process. This is what goes on in factories. But more and more of the value of manufactured goods now comes out of things you can't see. It comes out of intellectual property. It comes out of design and engineering and marketing and those sorts of things. And you don't need to be in a cheap labor country for that. You need a, a supply of workers with Unique skills who can contribute to your product, and so that really changes the calculus mm-hmm. on, on uh, globalization.
1: Um, you're very even-handed about the kind of costs and benefits of uh, of globalization throughout, both in terms of social and you know, environmental costs, all the all the costs. I wondered what you thought about kind of the role that globalization has played in inequality in industrialized nations? We know that inequality increased in many places since the 19, 1970 or so in many industrialized nations, probably no more, more than the United States, if I you know, know the data correctly. So what, what role do you think globalization has played in, in that story?
2: Well, I, I think that the story here is pretty clear. Globally, we've actually had a reduction in inequality because we've had this uh, really amazing economic growth yeah. in places like Bangladesh. And Bangladesh used to be considered a hopeless basket case. And and now uh, tens of millions of families are able to have at least a um, moderate living standard that they couldn't have dreamed of 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, China, where wages have risen to the point that uh, it's now an expensive place to manufacture and is now the world's largest market for automobiles. So if you look at the whole world, there's actually been uh, greater equality in income. Yep. Uh, I think what you definitely see is that in many of the countries that used to be called the industrial countries, mm-hmm. And you have to remember that we used to think of the United States and Canada and Western Europe and Japan as the industrialized countries. In many of those countries, the manufacturing jobs have vanished or have been in decline for many years. And that was obviously bad for wages in the manufacturing sector and for related sectors that depended on manufacturing. And those people who were reliant on that sort of work in many countries, were made worse off by the growth of international trade. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, many of them have subsequently found uh, other occupations, other careers, and they're doing better. But these transformations are not quick. Yeah, uh, th- They require new industries to develop. They require people to get new skills. And there's absolutely a period in which uh, people are, are hurt by this. It's also, I think, a very different according to where you happen to live geographically. Yep. Okay. If you live in a big city where there's lots of different types of employment, you may not have been hurt so much by the decline in manufacturing because there are other things to do. If you lived in a small town where there was one factory or perhaps there were two factories, those factories Closed up, you had a problem, yeah, because there weren't a lot of alternatives, there weren't a lot of options yeah uh, and and you worked for your entire life in the textile mill, and now the textile mill was gone, and there was nothing else in town, yeah, and there were a lot of people who who suffered from that mm-hmm. so I think it's it's true that globalization had these very different effects on income distribution and inequality, depending on what you look at. Mm-hmm. If we're looking globally, the world is much more equal than it was back in the days when we learned, as I did when I was a child, to eat my vegetables because people were starving in China. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at individual countries, there may be a significant increase in inequality. I need to add that that depends a lot on the social systems of individual countries, Right. because we've, there are some countries that have done very well in this transition. Uh, they had social programs and training programs to uh, take workers who'd been displaced from manufacturing and help them learn new skills. Mm-hmm. They provided them with income while they learned those new skills and enabled them to get into different careers. There are other countries that have not done so
1: well on that score. What are, what are some standout countries on the on the first part, on the training and uh, transitioning?
2: Well, I think we've seen that particularly in Scandinavia.
1: Okay. That's what I would guess. Uh, for example,
2: yeah. uh, where there are um, major training programs. And, and also, there's been a different attitude toward globalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attitude toward globalization has been Actually, we don't want those low-wage manufacturing jobs in our country. Uh-huh. We want to be a rich country. Right. If we want to be a rich country, we have to have our workers doing high-value, high-productivity jobs. And so please take those low-value jobs somewhere else right. and bring us the, the highly skilled jobs that let people earn a good wage. Mm-hmm. And there's been a certain uh, concerted effort to do that uh, in some countries. But uh, I think we've seen in the United States, for example, that we have not had uh, the support systems in place to help a lot of workers. Uh, we have not dealt at all with the question of how uh, people can relocate from these small factory towns once the, the factory goes out of business. And so I think we've had this this uh, skewed income distribution um, in a, a much greater way mm-hmm. than uh, in, in a, a number of other countries.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I've been Mark. I've been. I've spent the last five days working furiously on a journal article on Robert Reich uh, in the in the Clinton administration and uh, a law they were trying to get passed in 1994 that was called the Reemployment Act, which was supposed to be one of these retraining. Reemployment meant shifting workers out of industries that were fading. Uh, and into other ones. And the law didn't pass, so it's kind of a, a, a story of a, a possible failed alternative, right? But um, it was exactly, I mean, that that was their mindset uh, of Clinton and Reich and the others around them was exactly what you said, like, let the, uh, you know, low-wage jobs go away and let's become a kind of high-value uh, industry. But, you know, it just didn't work in the U.S. for uh, reasons of fiscal conservatism and stuff, you know, these very American... Uh, uh, kind of
2: well yeah it, it's not just fiscal conservatism uh some of it is is quite institutional yeah. uh for example uh, there's uh in in a lot of manufacturing industries workers were represented by labor unions yep the story about, well, these guys will go and find some other jobs, let's train them to do something else, is not a good story for the labor yeah, union, yeah. right? It wants to represent those people at that factory. Yeah. And the fact that they have all found other jobs in other industries, well, it may be good for them. It it doesn't uh, strengthen the union at all. Right. Uh, we've had training programs that are based on whether or not someone thinks that a worker was laid off due to international trade. Yep. So there's basically a judgment that somebody yes. makes. <laughs> this person has lost a job. Was that job due to international trade or not? Yep. And If the answer is yes, then there's some federal money available for training. If the answer is no, there may not be federal money available for training. But the distinction isn't always clear,
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: because uh, if you are in a position, for example, where your company provides some service to a manufacturer who's been affected by foreign competition, the workers in the manufacturing plant may get help, but your little company that that um, mows the grass at the manufacturing plant isn't going to get hit. Right. So uh, there are a lot of institutional factors here, quite aside from the political
1: ones. Yep. So I wanted to talk to you about, um, at, late in the book, you talk about the third uh, globalization as the age of stuff, uh, which I thought yes. was great. And, uh, you know, you point out things like, that British people bought five times as many pieces of clothing in 2017 as they did in 1987, for instance. So, and you know, I think that this has huge had a huge effect. Like, what poverty looks like in the United States in terms of material wealth is very different than what it looked like in in previous decades, right? And what stresses out poor people is uncertainty and precarity, and you know, health care and education and things like that. It's not so much the stuff they can buy at Walmart for very, very cheap. So I wonder, like, when you think of the kind of moving, you know, the, the third globalization transitioning to something else, uh, what is, you know, moving away from the age of stuff look like? And I know that demographic factors like aging populations and stuff plays some role, but what is what, what do you think is going on there? What will? What do you think will happen?
2: Well, a couple of things here. One is that uh, we've got older populations in most countries around the world now, yeah, uh, there, there are countries like Japan where the median age is now over forty years old. Yeah, okay. and uh, in most of Europe, Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, much of Latin America, uh, and even in China, the the median age is now rising. There are not so many young people, and this has direct implications for consumption. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and as uh, somebody who has gotten older himself, I can tell you that older people don't buy so much stuff. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we've got our furniture, we've got our clothing. We'll go out to dinner. We'll go out to the theater. Yeah. We'll take a trip. Okay, uh, we won't go to IKEA and and stock up. Okay, and and so think about this in the context of the demand for manufactured goods. Okay, we just don't need as much stuff you see something similar happening in the business sector Hmm. there's been huge growth in business investment in software there hasn't been huge growth in business investment in machinery yes and equipment why is that well because frankly software has a more and more important role in producing things in the factory yeah in fact you have a machine that's a couple of years old a few years ago, you might have wanted to replace that machine now, perhaps you can just replace the software, update the software yeah. and and not buy a new machine. yeah, so we're seeing the same kind of of trends, and then we're seeing services supplant goods in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the days when uh, I went off to college dragging a, a phonograph and a, um, a bunch of records. Okay, uh, and There was a point at which consumer electronics were a real big deal. Mm-hmm. Well, some kinds of electronics are still there, but music you buy as a service. Yep. You don't need records. You don't need the phonograph. You don't need necessarily a special piece of equipment to enjoy the music. and. We're seeing that uh, all over, from uh, renting a dress for the evening out to uh, bike sharing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, a lot of uh, people in, in many uh, cities around the world now uh, don't own bicycles. They rent
0: bicycles. Mm-hmm.
2: And the, the net result of all this is that there's less demand for physical products. And so we, we need to think about international trade and globalization in a different way.
1: Yeah, I wanted to t- ask you a bit more about that. So, in the, in the final chapter you make some predictions and you write in the emerging fourth globalization moving ideas, services and people around the world mattered more than transporting boatloads of goods and seemed likely to create a different set of winners and losers. And I wanted you to just say a bit more about, you know, why do you think this is and what does you know, what does it look like? What is the increasing trade in services look like, for example?
2: Well, first, let me say that trade in services is something about which we have a very poor understanding. You know, when we have trade in goods, it's moving. The goods are moving through a port (laughs) or an airport. We can physically count them. We can attach a value to each individual item. We have a pretty good idea of what's moving across borders. When it comes to services, we don't know. And there are some major conceptual problems that keep us from ever knowing. Yep. Certain services we've, we can count really well. Okay, we know how much Americans spent on airplane tickets to other countries last year. How many of those were purchased on uh, foreign air carriers? That's a U.S. import. How many tickets U.S. air carriers sold to foreigners coming to the U.S.? That's a U.S. import. Uh, we can count that stuff. But a lot of what goes on with regard to intangibles, you can't really count. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's either guesswork or no counting at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: as, as I mentioned, I worked for a while at uh, an investment bank in New York. Uh, I would call up our office in London frequently. Uh, we would exchange ideas. Hopefully, our exchange of ideas would help someone at some point make money. Yep. Okay. Those phone calls were an international transaction, except there was no transaction and nobody counted. Right. Nobody, <laughs> it's, it doesn't, yeah. they, they were a service, an intangible, but they don't register in the debt. Right. Okay. Similarly, when uh, you go and look um, something up on, on Google, uh, you're supplying Google with data, which they have figured out how to monetize, okay. but your search on google doesn't register as an international service transaction
0: yep. okay.
2: now some of the money from these international movements of ideas shows up in a return on investment rather than as a trade transaction yeah a lot of it doesn't show up anywhere yeah uh, i I have um on my uh, uh, a book, uh, on, on the cover of the book, uh, Outside the Box, there's a photograph of me. And this photograph was taken by a woman who lives here in Washington, D.C. So it was produced domestically.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: But after she took this photograph, she sent it off to a company which specializes in retouching photos. Not that I need a lot of retouching, but a little sometimes. Mm -hmm. This company that specializes in retouching sent the photograph to some people in Peru who actually do the retouching. Mm -hmm. I had the photograph back the next morning. (laughs) Was there an international transaction here? I don't
0: know. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, I paid the U.S. photographer. She paid the retouching company elsewhere in the United States. Were the people who got the money in Peru uh, part owners of a company, and so they got a return on investment? Were they employees of the U.S. company? Was were there? Were they registered as exporting a service? Are they subcontracting <laughs> export right? a service yeah, exactly. to the United States? We, we have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And so here's a, a, a little transaction that probably cost a few dollars, and yeah, it probably was not captured by anybody's statistics. Multiply that by a zillion, yeah. and you can see the issues here. So. We're we're seeing more and more of of this type of international economic relationship yeah. because the value is moving in ideas, uh, is moving in intangibles. So here's how a company deals with this, and and I, I will tell you this because uh, uh, this is an anecdote from a major company that I won't name, but they make their product in several different places. So when they have a new a product and and they have engineers in several different countries who are all contributing to that product. They estimate what percentage of the sales of that product are going to occur in each different country. And they attribute this much of the engineering costs to this country and this much of the engineering costs to that country and this much of the engineering costs to the United States. They don't actually know. They're not actually measuring where the engineering for that product occurred, they're saying that it's really not worth our time wow. to figure out where all the engineering for this product occurred. And so we're just going to assume that uh, 10% of the cost was incurred <laughs> in Brazil because that's where 10% of the sales
1: are. Wow, okay? yeah.
2: So we've got a lot of these intangibles floating around the world now. Yeah. And there's no way to count them it's very hard to see their effects on uh, individuals,
0: yeah
2: uh, you were asking about uh, inequality earlier. One aspect of inequality with the rise of uh, international value chains is that we had a lot of factory closures, and when a factory gets closed, you can see that a hundred yep. people, a thousand people lose their jobs they 're out on the street all at once it's a headlock
0: yeah okay?
2: but what about my photo retoucher okay here we didn't have any factory closed what we had was some work that might have previously been done in the united states is now being done in peru if you think of a lot of people having the same experience then perhaps wages for photo retouchers in the united states will go down a little bit because part of the business has wandered off to peru yeah but we don't know that. We don't know, and maybe the photo, maybe the photo retouchers are able to do something else with their computers yeah. because they don't have as much retouching to do. So, how do you figure the economic impact
0: yeah, of this international
2: you. transaction? If you're the government, how do you find whose paychecks are smaller because of this, and how do you assist them? Right. We can't really do that in the same way as we did with um, manufactured goods. Yeah. And how do you deal? With unfair trade practices, you know this is a big deal in the manufacturers' world, uh, yeah. right? Uh, we're going to put anti-dumping duties on imports of this from that country because the government is uh, helping the com- company sell its goods too cheaply in the U.S. market, and that's not fair. Yeah. But how do you how do you think about trade in services in that context? Are we going to impose sanctions on? peru because the photo retoucher in peru is selling its services to me too cheaply yeah i don't think so mm-hmm. so our, our whole way of thinking about international trade is is quite different that's
1: really interesting so this uh book came out in 2020 and um you know it's only been three years i i just wondered you know if you were writing it you know, if you're writing a revised, you know, like a new afterward or uh, you're revising it today and it wasn't out yet, would you change anything or would you update or anything or, you know, how are you feeling?
2: The only thing that I would change in the book, I think, is to devote a bit more attention to geopolitics, uh-huh. uh, because obviously that has become a significant factor in
1: in, no international joke. International huh?
2: trade to a much greater degree than it was a couple of years yep. ago. Uh, you know, we've had uh, companies in the United States uh, be discouraged by their government from buying you know, Chinese-made telephone systems. Yep. Right? Uh, we've had companies being told to get out of Russia. Yep. And and not not trade with Russia and and sell out of their investments and leave the country. Yeah. So I think geopolitics are. are playing, um, a much more prominent role in globalization now than was the case a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm not sure how much, uh, the extent to what that's, that that'll continue. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really heavily concentrated in, in a small number of products. Yeah, And so while a geopolitical impact is very real, uh, what's happening to semiconductors, uh, is where, where governments around the world are subsidizing yeah. a massive construction of semiconductor plants. Uh, nobody is subsidizing construction of toy yeah. factories. <laughs> that was the example I was going to use. Electric.
1: factories
2: <laughs> yeah. or yeah, uh, 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 a ladder factory. Yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets traded around the world that really isn't affected by this yeah. these geopolitical changes much at all. Yeah.
1: Uh, so what's next, Mark? What are you working on it? What are you working on these days? Well, I've got a couple of
2: things I've been working on, but I'm, I'm not at the stage of uh, being ready to talk right, about right. them quite yet. Okay. You know, a, a book uh, takes root in your mind, yeah. and then as you research it, it changes. Uh, you've had this experience, okay. I'm sure, and and you've decided that your initial concept uh isn't very interesting or isn't going to work out very well because of the sources that are available. And so you begin to reshape your, uh, your thinking in, some, in that process at the moment.
1: Well, Mark. well, this has been so fun for me. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed it.
2: Lee, it's been great fun. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel, And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.